Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 16. It's the last book in the Bible. We've been studying through this book chapter by chapter as a congregation, and we've been in chapter 16 for several weeks now. I've been, I've tarried here because I find in it such encouragement, even though at first blush you might think, how in the world, what kind of sick pastor is that to find encouragement in the seven bowls of God's wrath? But uh, we've been learning as well through our study of Revelation that the whole thing is about Jesus winning. And if we're on His side, we win too. Jesus wins. Jesus is winning now. He is going to win at the end. It's simple to be on His side. It means that you confess that you're in need of salvation, and you confess your sins to Him. You receive His righteousness in exchange for your sin. His blood atones for all your sins. When you kneel before Christ, take Him as your Lord and Savior there, is the assurance that you'll be on the winning side. So you study a passage like this, and though it shows you where you need to become more like Christ, you also know that the Holy Spirit is the one who enables you, that Jesus is the one who forgives. Jesus is the one who empowers you through that same Spirit. Now, in this last section of chapter 16, verses 17 to 21, uh, we have this incredible phrase, this incredible statement, second only to the, or, or, or second only to the, to that which Jesus excelled, excelled at the, at the cross when He said, it is finished. Here in chapter, in verse 17, He says, it is done. What is done? Everything, history and the defeat of all of His enemies. And we've seen it hinted at already in chapter 15, verses 1 and, uh, and eight, he says, it will be done. It will be finished. He says in chapter 10 that the kingdom of God will arrive. He says in chapter 11, the day will come when the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of this evil system of the world, will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. Everywhere He promises that history will end and Christ will win. And this is no exception. But this, this seventh bowl, this is the end of the end. And when this bowl is poured out in God's judgment at the great judgment day, you want to be with Him when He says, it is done. Let's look at these verses and prepare ourselves to be encouraged by God's gospel. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. And every island fled away, no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague 
was so severe. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. 1963, a man named John Wimber committed his life to Christ. He heard the gospel and responded to it by faith, and Jesus took his sins and replaced that sinful record with his righteousness, John Wimber. At the time, he was a keyboard player for the Paramours and a founding member of the Righteous Brothers. And he continued in that kind of music and in that kind of world, the world he called the hippie world, a child of the 60s. He continued in it a while, even as he began to grow as a Christian. And though he had not been raised in a church, he didn't know anything about Christianity, he did know enough, he had learned enough that he knew that Christians were supposed to go to church. So he set out to find a church. And uh, he found the church, the closest, uh, closest church to him was a Quaker assembly. Now, you may not know uh, anything about the Quakers, but you can, uh, you can take it from me that they're quiet people, at least in worship. And so somebody who's used to playing keyboards in a keyboard in the Paramours or the Righteous Brothers as a kind of an odd duck in the Quaker assembly. But those people took him in. They loved him. He learned the Word from them. He learned the Bible. And as he grew in his understanding of the Bible, as he read the Bible for himself, he was amazed, especially in the New Testament, of what he was discovering there. He went to his pastor one day, and he said, when are we going to start doing stuff? And he said, well, what kind of stuff are you talking about? And he said, well, the stuff like they did in the New Testament, the stuff like Jesus did where he healed the sick and he, he, uh, he, he raised people from the dead. And, and in the New Testament, people are set free from the power and the oppressive uh, things uh, that the devil puts on them. And when are we going to start doing that stuff? And the pastor was caught off guard a little bit, and he gave not, a not-so-great answer. He said, well, we... We don't do that stuff anymore. And so John Wimber has a great sense, had a great sense of humor. He said, uh, so, he said so what, what kind of stuff do we do? You, you mean just I mean, going to church and drinking coffee? For that, I gave up drugs? He said, Wimber was a man with a great sense of humor and devoted himself to the Scriptures We might not agree with all of his theology, but here's the way he lived. He lived urging Christians to expect Jesus to do stuff. Expect Jesus to work miracles. Expect Jesus to heal. Expect Jesus to set people free from the dominion of the evil one. It's not guaranteed on every instance that somebody's going to be healed, but pray for it anyway. Not everybody you've witnessed to is going to be saved, but witness to him anyway and expect them to be set free by Jesus. Where are we today? Are we living in such a way that the world would look at us and say their Christianity, maybe it's a coping mechanism, but there's not much happening there. They're just as depressed and, and cowering and and, and upset and overwhelmed as the rest of us. There's no confidence in their faith. Or do they look at us and say, you know, those people are crazy, 
but I kind of like the fact that they're confident in someone or something that is going to bring victory over all of this mess. That is where we should be. As we study the Bible over and over again, especially in this book, and He assures us that He wins, and He's winning now, and if you're on His side, you're on the winning side, and it doesn't mean that you're not going to have troubles, not going to have difficulty. We are. We are going to go through suffering and persecution and difficulties. But there is coming a day when He will say, it is done. I have won. All of my enemies are defeated, and here are those who have joined me in the battle. Now, in this seventh bowl of God's wrath poured out on all of His enemies, we find the last act of judgment on the final two enemies that we face, that Jesus faces. They really summarize all the enemies together. They're evil spirits and systems of evil. Evil spirits and systems of evil, and He will defeat them in such a way that it will be satisfying to those who are on his side. Now look at where I get that in verses 17 and 21. Here is where I find that he assures victory over the spirits, over demonic uh, demons, and over the, the minions of the evil one. It's not a surprise to us that, that the devil, that there is a devil. It's not a surprise to us in the study of Revelation so far that there are demons, demonic spirits. Chapter 16, verse 13, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, what? Unclean spirits. So the devil uses unclean spirits to embolden, empower the works of evil in this world. But you say that, I understand that, preacher, but where is it in this text? Well, it's in verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. We have to interpret Scripture with Scripture, so we have to interpret the way a word is used by other Scriptures. How is air used in the Bible? It's a reference to the realm of demonic spirits, that, word, that realm that we can't see where there is this warfare between God's angels and the devil's angels. It's referred to in chapter 9, verse 2, where the smoke, where the, the devil's forces came up out of the pit, and it went into the air. Those demons went into the air. It's even clearer, especially clear in Ephesians chapter 2. We know in verse 1 that the that we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And at one time, we were servants of the prince of the power of the air. So this reference to air in Scripture is a reference to that realm in which there is this, this invisible uh, angelic conflict. And it's not, it's not uh, segmented from us, but those demons empower, embolden the evil forces that we encounter, even as we are helped and strengthened by the angelic forces of God and especially His Holy Spirit. So what do you do with that information? You either believe it or you don't, for one. We, we say when we, when we believe the Bible, we believe everything that the Bible says about everything and how the world is made up, including the, what the, world, the way the Bible describes the cosmology of the world, not the cosmetology of the world, but the cosmology of the world, how the world is made up, 
how it's composed. And the Bible says there is this unseen reality and a seen reality. There are angels and demons. There's a devil and God. We submit to that worldview. And then when we do submit to that worldview, we have, the, or, or if we don't submit to the worldview, we can have this, this possibility of two errors. When we do submit to the, to the worldview, we have this possibility. We can be overconfident or we can be terrified. C.S. Lewis said the devil's equally uh, happy about it, uh, either one. He's happy if you are overly confident when you say it doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a, a spiritual realm where scientific people, we know where there's a closed system. He's happy with that because he is allowed to do his mischief without your interruption. He's also happy with uh, our being consumed with it and too curious about it, exploring it on the internet or with our friends or, or messing around with demonic worship. That's been an issue I've dealt with throughout my pastorate, people with their curiosity driving them into that. And they, inevitably, they become victims of it or they're terrified of it. Or Christians who find demons behind every bush and give the devil too much credit and forget the greater is he who is in them than he who is in the world. So what is the, the counter to that? What is the counter to being overconfident? That is, that it doesn't exist. It is to acknowledge that it is true, that demons exist and they empower evil. You know it in your heart of hearts and you will discover it or you have to be forced to admit it someday, no matter how much you try to deny it happens among unbelievers, happens among sophisticated, learned people who fancy themselves to be atheists or agnostics who are, who are uh, sophisticated to the point they don't need to believe in such things. Recently, I read about Scott Simon, a journalist with National Public Radio. If you listen to NPR at all, you've heard Scott Simon reporting. Scott Simon just a few years ago said he was watching the news with his children one night when Assad, you know, the dictator in Syria, Assad was dropping those, those chemical weapons, those barrels of, of toxic gas on his people. And people were literally burning alive with, a, with an unseen substance. He was watching that and he said his worldview suddenly became irrelevant. His worldview that, that this is, that evil is just, you know, that what we call evil, what we've known as evil, he, he never even uses that word in his reporting because he says he thinks it's unsophisticated, but that, that sin or whatever the problems of the world are, they're just, uh, they're, the, they're the, the, the lasting places, the remaining places where evolution hasn't taken effect yet. But all of that worldview, he said, was useless when he's watching that tragedy with his children. And his daughter cries out, Daddy, why is that happening? Who would do that? He said, though I won't use evil as a reporter, as a parent, I've grown to feel it important to tell my children about evil. As we struggle to explain cruel and incomprehensible behavior, they may see not just in history, but in our own times, the presence of evil. And then he goes on to share a time when he interviewed uh, uh, one of the leaders of the UN who was dealing, who had been, who had dealt with the genocide in Rwanda. 
And he said, that so-called sophisticated man also told me about his coming face-to-face with an evil presence that he had denied when he could sense when he was interviewing, when he was confronting, interrogating one of those genocidal animals. I sensed the very presence of the devil. I knew I needed relief. There is a reality. It's no place for overconfidence in dealing with the enemies that we have, the evils that we encounter, because they are empowered by the devil himself and his minions. But neither is there a place for cowardice. Neither is there a place for retreat. Yes, we acknowledge their presence, but we also acknowledge greater is He, namely Jesus, through the Holy Spirit who is in us than He who is in the world. And then we read promises as in James chapter 4, verse 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him. We resist him by prayer. We resist him by evangelism. We resist him by study of the Word. We resist him in worship. We resist Him by having babies and baptizing them and training them up as disciples. We resist Him, and we trust He is fleeing, and we're rattling the gates of hell. John Wimber, on another occasion, a friend of mine was, went to John Wimber. He is encountering some, some spiritual activity. It didn't quite fit into his theology at that time. And he went to John Wimber, and he said, what do I do? What do I do? This really looks like demonic activity. I'm not sure, I, but, I, but, I, but I've been taught that there aren't demons anymore. John Wimber said in his inimical way, he said, uh, what do you do when a dog gets into their trash can? So I take a club and I beat it and I tell him to get out of there. That's what you do with a demon. Jesus Christ indwells you. Don't flee from that demon. You take a club and beat it and say, get out of here just like you would to a dog. And he has to flee in the name of Jesus. You don't have to do anything fancy. You don't have to have holy water. You don't have to do an exorcism. You don't have to name it by name. You trust in Jesus. We're on the winning side. Jesus promises defeat of our spiritual enemies. And beyond that, He promises defeat of systems. Now, where do I get that? Verses 16 and 19, remember, in 16, it says he's going to gather all of these enemies, these spiritual enemies in one place, and he's going to destroy them all at once. And then in verse 19, he says there's a great city. The great city was split in three parts. That is, they they turned on, God caused them to turn on each other. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. Again, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. And what have we learned so far that Babylon represents? Babylon represents the world, what John calls elsewhere the world. And he says, all that is of not God is of the world. And what did we learn in Sunday school is the world. We learn to call the world a system. In Sunday school, we learned from theologians to call the world a system. And in theology, we learned to identify the sin that came from Adam down to us as systemic, a systemic sin, a systemic problem, systemic evil. Something that is systemic is is something that is shot through 
And so we've said before that this world is shot through with sin. It's shot through with evil. Everything is broken. We have systemic evil. And within this systemically evil system called the world, there are subsystems that emerge that are symptomatic of this more foundational systemic evil. And here's a definition I would venture. A systemic problem is a system that is that perpetuates, whether intentionally or unintentionally, a system that perpetuates, intentionally or non-intentionally, diminishment or destruction of those made in His image. Diminishment or destruction of those made in His image. It's exactly what God said would happen as a result of Adam's sin. The devil is going to continue to strike at the heel of those made in the image of God someday. Jesus will crush the enemy's head. So we have various kinds of systems that are diminishing those made in the image of God, that are are attempting to destroy those made in the image of God, that are warring against it. Some of those are unintentional. We'd hesitate to call them evil, but they're working against the flourishing of one made in the image of God. Let me give you an innocuous one to begin with. When I I was of that generation of parents who loaded gallons and gallons of apple juice in sippy cups full of sugar, and we plunged it into our children's mouths, and then we wondered when they went to the dentist why their front teeth were rotted out. We made a generation of rich dentists. Now, we didn't intend that, but there we we engaged in something, we perpetuated something that did, did damage to one made in the image of God. It wasn't irreversible damage, thank goodness. My children are here today. They've got their front teeth implanted. No, they're real good. <laughs> That's just something we do. In when, and when Teflon was invented, it was invented for a good purpose. It didn't, wasn't intended to do, have birth defects. But when, it, when something becomes a systemic, a perpetual problem, that works destruction or diminishment of the image of God, it has to be dealt with, has to be attacked at the root, has to be reversed. Now, there are other systems that are premeditated in their evil. Slavery or racism or Jim Crow laws or classism or insurance fraud or tax evasion, uh, or um, payday lending. You can name any number of things. There are premeditated efforts to harm other people made in the image of God for one's selfish gain. And then there are other kinds of systems that are creational systems. There's this just leftover from the fall, like poverty, like disease cancer, mental illness. Those are also systemic problems. We could say systemic evils. And when we find out about them, they can be overwhelming. And so we develop coping mechanisms. We develop a coping mechanism that says, that doesn't exist, and I'm going to deny it to my dying day that that exists. Or we get overwhelmed by it, and we, we, it makes us feel guilty. That 
oh, I did this, so I've got to feel guilty. And then it, it, it paralyzes us in our guilt, and then we're of no worth either, no use. Just people feeling guilty for, and wallowing in their guilt, we can't do anything with that. Guilt is intended to drive you to the cross. The cross sets you free, and you turn around and look at the problem and say, how can Jesus cure it? So what do we do? What do we do with, with something that we identify as a system or is identified to us as a systemic evil or problem? Let me suggest this is the way we do. First of all, we look at the Bible. And we say, is this really something that displeases God, that is contrary to His will and is doing destruction to one made in the image of God? Okay. And then we also we stay there in the Bible uh, long enough to get the throne before us. We go to a passage like this, and we get the throne of God before our eyes. We don't just obsess. We don't obsess on the problem. We, okay, that is a problem. It's contrary to the will of God. Now I'm going to put my eyes on Jesus. Jesus, this, this, is a, this is a problem. It's a systemic problem. But you tell me that you're going to defeat all of these because they're part of Babylon. They're part of the world. They're emboldened. They're empowered by demons. So, Lord Jesus, keep my eyes on you. There's another step. With the throne fully in view, investigate the problem. But investigate it to see if there is something you should do about it or you have some responsibility in it, not automatically assuming so. That's part of our problem. We're a, we're a subculture of achievers, so we think that every time we find out a problem, we have to fix it. And so we feel guilty or responsible before we even look at it, and it's easier just to say it doesn't exist and to find some Christian book that tells us it doesn't exist. But we look at it and we say, okay, that is indeed a problem, a systemic evil. And here's the next thing you do. Put it on your prayer list. Put it on your prayer list. Lord Jesus, this is such a problem. It's so widespread. It's so shot through society and maybe even societies around the world. There's nothing I can do about it on my own. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Work your wrath on this evil that is working destruction on those made in the image of God. And then while you're kneeling there in your prayer list, you say, and wherever I find it, Lord, show me if I'm supposed to do, how I'm supposed to take it on. Other than prayer, I'm going to war against it in prayer. But when you, if you bring to me any other way I'm to take it on, Lord, I tremble at saying it, but I will. If it's to counteract something that I see happening, it's to volunteer, if it's volunteer to be in, in government, if it's to if it's to pursue medicine so that I can find a cure for these diseases, pursue psychiatry or psychology so that I can do battle with mental illness, if it's to be, uh, to be a preacher and, and equip my people to take it on, if, if, if it's to raise up children who are going to be who are going to, to take on evil wherever they find it. In the name of Jesus, whatever it is, Lord, you show me, and I'll do it. I'll do my part. Let me give you an example from one of our own who did just this thing. 
while ago, maybe last year, I said something in passing about take your loaves and fishes to the Lord Jesus and let Him multiply them. So here's a problem, overwhelming problem. Got 5,000 people out here, Jesus, who need to be fed. They're getting hangry about it. Well, what do you have? I've only got five loaves and two fishes. What am I going to do? Give them to me. And he multiplied them. Solved the problem. So one of our members who knows grace, you know, she knows that all of her sins have been nailed to the cross, and so she listens for opportunities in the worship service, not for areas in which she's going to wallow in guilt. And so she was thinking about the problem of the racial reconciliation. She was thinking about cyclical poverty. She was thinking about gun violence in our city. And she said, I have some loaves and fishes I want to give to the Lord. I make bunt cakes. I'm going to give my bunt cakes to the Lord and see if He can answer those problems. Doesn't that sound silly? except when this is the way Jesus loves to work. So she gave her little business to one of our partners, one of our ministry partners. They were at Christian centers who could upscale it. And, uh, and now it is a, a place where various races are working together to learn a trade in baking, to find a way to escape cyclical poverty and also in partnership with the program we have with the villages that is taking on gun violence with those who as young children have engaged in it and trying to show them a way out. It all started with a bunt cake. No, actually it started with a theology of grace that said, whatever I hear, I, I'm not going to wallow in my guilt about it. I'm going to hear it as an opportunity that the, that the power of Christ working through me can do something about. And I'm going to give my loaves and fishes and say, Jesus, use me. Isn't that the way you want to live? Well, the final point is, is He's going to do it to our satisfaction. He's going to bring victory on all of these evils in a way that is deeply satisfying. See in verses 17 and 18, He pours out His wrath in this way. The lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. There are 12 earthquakes in the Bible. Four of them occur in the, in the book of Revelation. And each time they're intended to confirm to Christians, I'm working and my word is true. Now, we call these, it's not a literal earthquake, this is a, a manner of speaking here, but it's, it is reflective of something literally that happened in the Old Testament when, Jesus, when God said, here, I'm giving you my law, I'm giving you my word, I'm going to shake the mountain just to, just to affirm to you that this is true. I'm going to touch you in observable ways so that you can know my kingdom is on course. We're moving forward. God still does that today, not so much shaking mountains, but I mean, he, he brings parts of the final judgment into the present world in such a way that we remain encouraged. 
We pray for it every Sunday. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth right now as it is in heaven. We call that in theology intrusion ethics, or we might say inbreaking, inbreaking, an inbreaking of the kingdom. When someone is here living because they have been treated for and survived cancer. That's an inbreaking of the kingdom. That God has brought the final healing, aspects of the final healing into this world to keep us encouraged to the future perfect healing. When justice is brought upon those whom we despaired over, someone is, their evil is exposed and it's it's, it's arrested. When a dictator is brought down, when we see something in our family healed or in, a, in, in another family, a family put back together, when we see somebody delivered from addictions, these are in, this is inbreaking of the kingdom. These are rumblings of the coming final earthquake when Jesus will say, it is done. So keep fighting by faith even in the meantime. Even if you will never see it perfected in this world, keep fighting with this defiant hope that Jesus is going to bring victory over all His and your enemies. Now why do I keep bringing up these kinds of things? Why do preachers talk about things that are controversial, that make us squirm, that the world wants to, 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 to rub in our face? because we have no fear with the gospel. And plus, because over the decades, this is what I've seen happen. We've put, I've put out these problems, these applications, these needs to God's people. And the Holy Spirit is such that He is so creative that He lays creative solutions in people's minds and hearts like making bunt cakes. And it's glorious to see. And then I also, looking at the throne and thinking of that day when final judgment will come, and it's going to be something like this. When all the, 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 all the enemies are defeated, Jesus reaches down into a box, like a box of snakes, and he pulls up a beheaded rattlesnake by the tail. And he says, here's one enemy. It's called cancer. How many of you fought against it by praying against it, by by researching this, by, by treating it, by pro providing palliative care and comfort. How many of you? And everybody raised their hand. And he says, it is done. And we cheer. He throws it down. He grabs another one. Here is racism. How many of you fought against it, prayed against it, worked against it, spoke against it? He raised their hands. He says, it is done. And he reaches down. He gets another. Here is here is, uh, here is predatory uh, efforts on the poor, making them even more poor. How many participate? Raise your hand. Listen. On that day, you don't want to have your hands in your lap and say, no, I never admitted that that was a problem. It just made me feel too guilty. So-and-so in a book told me I didn't have to worry about it. Told me it wasn't a thing. We don't want to be like that. 
We want to name every evil that Jesus names. What it is. And participate, if in no other way than by prayer, so that in that great day when Jesus says, it is done, we cheer and say, we are in victory with you. Isn't that the way you want to live? Isn't that the way you want to finish? Isn't that the way you want to celebrate dancing on the graves of every systemic evil? Then let's do it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the promise of victory. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would, you would take our prayers, that you would take our feeble hands, our feeble resources, and multiply them for your glory, for our good. Get a name for yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen.